This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Christchurch Conversations for 2022 continues the climate action theme with a series of events hosted by Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making. This recording is from an event recently held at Turanga Library called How Do We Grow a Climate Action City for Everyone? and features experts, passionate people and groups working in this area. It's introduced by Sasha McMeeking. Um, I get to welcome you here, which I feel a bit like a fraud doing, for um, two reasons. I'm not an eco-warrior, um, and second, I'm just in Te Putahi's fan club, and um, the occasional rope-in on a microphone. Um, but as um, someone from Naitahu, Te Putahi is one of the few organisations with a commitment to principle that says mana whenua gets to be the first voice. So I mihi to you for that um, point of principle, and I'm really delighted to welcome you all here with my little sidekick. Um, to talk about the kaupapa of the evening, how to create a climate action city for everyone, including those under two. Um, what I want to talk about um, is how to build a movement, but I've just remembered that there might be housekeeping. You've done it? Oh, superb. So then I'd just like to talk about movement building instead of prosaic housekeeping matters. And in doing that, I'm going to display multitasking skills. So when I think about how to build a movement, the, the first point of reference I have is Naitahu and what I heard about how Naitahu carried over seven generations a pursuit of consistent justice, identity, passion and commitment to a singular goal. And from that example, I think there are lots of insights that are potentially relevant to how to build a climate action city for all. So the next part of my fraudster journey is when the Naitahu settlement was being passed, I was doing my first law exams. So I didn't fight for the settlement, I inherited the settlement. And with inheriting the settlement, I inherited all of these stories about how my tupuna managed to carry something for seven generations. <laughs> We're going to enrol in a um, stand-up comedy sometime soon. And the, the first thing 
that enabled Naitahu to do that is we had the claim. The claim was something that was an excuse to bring us together. That's a skilled tower who knows exactly what's going to happen. Thank you. Um, that brought us together as a singular people. It gave us a vision. It gave us something to hold on to. And the second thing that Naitahu had over seven generations, as I heard the story, was that we had mahinga kai. And mahi kai, collecting food. So we had the vision of justice, the pursuit of justice which held us together at a visionary level. And we had moving around the, the motu, our island, to collect food, whether it was tuna or kaimoana um, or titi, the little baby birds that we strangle and eat. Um, which might not always make us welcome in environments like this. And that mahinga kai was a really practical thing to do together, a really practical thing that reaffirmed our identity, that reaffirmed our relationships according to our own traditional values, and enabled us to carry on being uniquely and distinctively us in our landscape. And the third thing that I remember the stories, particularly from Tatipani, so they come with a high degree of irreverence, was that during the period of negotiating our settlement, what we did as a people was, in his language, maintained a living mandate. So at all times, as we were going through a pretty tricky process, so if you listen to The Economist's, Naitahu accepted one cent in the dollar um, for the loss that we experienced. So if you're going to encourage people to give up 99 cents worth of value, you've got to be pretty persuasive. Um, but more importantly, in Tatipani's way of thinking about it, is that it's a constant process of renewing the support for moving forward. And I think... Out of these three things that gave Naitahu the ability to carry the claim forward over seven generations, there are some lessons for us that make theory um, potentially interesting. So, none of you thought that was funny. Why, why, why don't you think it's funny to be cheeky about theory? Um, maybe I did a new day job. So, when we look at um, theories about movement building, and there are lots of theories. There are people whose life's work is to articulate the theory of how to build movements. And it's really helpful. And I think we can learn from it as long as we apply it to our context. And inside all of the theoretical work about... Um, about social movement building and about grassroots movement building, there are a few things that stand out as fundamental to build a movement behind, for our example, a city... Not sure that's so great. Um, and the first one is about coherence. 
So we know that if people are going to pursue something, if people are, you've broken your heart, um, <laughs> going to pursue some kind of change, if we're going to mobilise people behind anything, there has to be a process of sense-making. We have to find a way to make sense of the desired future that we're seeking. We have to find a way to... adjust our mental models, to translate the cause that is being presented to us in a way that resonates with our values and our beliefs and our attitudes. And <coughs> Honey, you don't need the microphone. Um, so in order to, to have that sense-making process, where not only our minds but also our hearts can understand the pursuit of change... The, the first thing that we need is something that gives us coherence, coherence of narrative, coherence of understanding. And for Naitahu, that's what the claim did. It gave us a coherent vision that framed a whole set of mental models, a whole set of expectations, a whole set of values and beliefs and expectations within a community of people. And the theory says, well, we're really glad you did that, Naitahu, because without that, you wouldn't have achieved the settlement. Needed the coherence, that vision, and that clarity brought. The, the second thing that I think theory helps us understand is that as important as it is to think something, it is equally as important to enact something. So we can enact our way into understanding change. We can literally do a really practical thing. So if I am um, trying to do some virtuous physical exercise life improvement, if a friend comes and picks me up and makes me go for a walk, it doesn't matter if I am pursuing better health as an intentional choice. What matters is that I'm being forced to act into it. I might be revealing too much of my... Um, attitude towards physical exercise there. Um, <clears throat> so the, the combination of having the coherence that we understand, that frames our expectations, that resonates with our values, and acting into um, how we understand the change, what the theory would suggest is that that combination is a winning combination and that it gets supported by a third part of the process, which in really geeky terms is called laminating. I know I feel the same way about that phrase. And all laminating means is to layer, is to continually layer on that coherence, that enactment. And it gets talked about in terms of um, framing. So we use frames of reference to shape our expectation and frames of reference to um, shape our values about a particular thing. And if we're trying to move away from a particular frame, such as um, the earth is something to be exploited, and we're trying to get another frame, another set of um, narratives to shape our expectations, first we've got to break that frame that keeps us locked in a place we don't want to be. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And the second thing we need to do is to continue laminating the new frame that we're trying to create. <coughs> and I think that's what we can see across the Naitahu example. We successfully had the vision that gave us coherence as a people. We had Mahinga Kai, which was a really practical, identity-affirming set of actions that we acted our way into being a people together. And the third part is that we maintained that living mandate. There was a constant set of roving conversations over that whole settlement period where we were negotiating. People were cars, buses, travelling the motu to keep a sense of momentum and expectation and kind of promulgating acceptance of something that was really tricky. And I think when we look at some of the global movements, which can also help us understand what works or what doesn't for building a movement in a city or building a movement behind a cause that creates real transformation... I think what we see is that the combination of all three of those things is spectacularly rare. You can look to different movements and see glimmers of magic in one of the dimensions. Um, but less... <coughs> Thank you. Um, but it's patchy. So if we look at Me Too or Black Lives Matter which I think we can all accept have been really significant recent global movements. They were really powerful when it came to that first part about having coherence and a narrative and um, occupy to potentially a lesser extent having that coherence. What most people in their commentary about Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement talk about is the, a sense of dissatisfaction about the outcomes of those movements. A dissatisfaction about the practical change that came from Black Lives Matter or Me Too. And they did both have meaningful outcomes about different um, commissions that were established to look into different racist practices or particular people who lost their positions of power and privilege for sexual misconduct. So there were practical things. But the practical things that happened were far less, I think, than the aspirations of those who drove the movement or who had hope for what it could bring. Whereas you can contrast that with something like Pokemon Go. It might not have occurred to you... But you could say that Pokemon Go is the most successful public health campaign that was never a public health campaign. Because 50 million people literally started doing exercise that they would not otherwise have done. So it's a great example of acting into transformation without the coherence or the meaning-making about what that transformation actually meant. Which meant that some... Diehards might still be looking for Pokemon, but they're now rare. And that might not be the only reason that we're not hunting Pokemons. Oh, good. Okay, thank you. Um, and we can contrast that with lots of the public health campaigns that we see, um, whether it's to stop smoking or various other things. 
um, the All Right campaign, these campaigns are really powerfully laminated. We're repeatedly exposed to them, um, but without necessarily having the coherent vision or the enactment components tailored in a way that means the uptake is as much as those who make them would aspire to. So what does that mean for Christchurch? If we are going to become a climate action city for all, I think there are some lessons that we can take from these examples and um, about how we can do each of those components. So how, how can you have a coherent vision? How can you build a suite of enactment that enables people to act their way into change? And how do you do lamination so that it works effectively? And I think the, the first thing that research shows us is deeply frustrating. I, it's exa it feels exactly like that. <clears throat> Which is, um, so lots of us, me included, when we're confronted with someone who does not share our opinion, our first inclination might be to tell them a lot of facts about exactly why they're wrong. And um, I won't ask you to put your hand up if you happen to be one of those people who has shared a lot of facts about why that other person might be wrong. And what we know from that approach, as necessary as it might feel in the moment, is that it's completely counterproductive. If you're trying to talk to someone to build a sense of shared vision, um, using facts will only polarise the conversation. And, um, and that if we want to build a coherent vision that broadens those who um, are active participants in a movement, then it's about values resonance. And values resonance... Um, also contributes to um, the sense of autonomy that we might have when we come into uh, a, a particular movement or a particular cause. And that matters, having that values alignment, having that autonomy matters because it triggers a different kind of motivation. If you make me do something, like my friend who might want me to go walking... It's extrinsic motivation. As soon as they're gone, I'm not doing it anymore. Whereas if I am triggered by a sense of belief and having a sense of autonomy over what I'm doing, I might go and do it all by myself, like a real grown-up. And so I think both of those points can be somewhat challenging for some of our environmental movements. Because there's a lot of statistics out there that look like they're really helping the necessity of pace and scale for change behind environmentalism. Um, whether it's working is something to question. There's, um, I don't need to worry about that. Um, and we know that there's a sense of powerlessness within people's own sense of autonomy to create change. So these are things that matter to enlisting people. 
um, but are challenging. And then I think the third one, um, which is also potentially tricky, is the whole process of identification, which is just a fancy way of saying that thing is important to my sense of personal identity. So there is a really good chance that I will never identify as an environmentalist simply because I don't identify with it. And so what is it about the whole notion of environmentalism that I'll never identify with? Is that in an environmental space, I feel kind of guilty that my tribe strangles and plucks baby birds. And um, I don't actually eat them, because I, I don't do that. But as an identification point, there's a real difference between environmentalism for protection to look at and uh, environmentalism driven by Mahinga Kai, which is a protection to eat it ethic. And so those points of identification matter because if the identification is narrow, so will be the movement. Um, I think the second part that is helpful to think about is in the enactment space. So in lots of movements, there's the ongoing debate about are we talking about macro change at policy level with government? You've got a call coming in? Um, or is it about at the micro level the actions that individuals can take? And we all know the answer, which is that it's both. We need macro-level policy change, we need micro-level behavioural change. But what can tend to happen inside movements is that there's the battle of the level, where um, particular people will argue the supremacy or the primacy of some layer of action um, over the other, which you could say is unnecessary and unhelpful. Because it's not about... Thanks, darling. That's what we needed. It, it's not about which layer. I feel very silly. <laughs> it's about all of the layers simultaneously in a way that's intentionally curated. Your Thanks. Um, intentionally curated to have mutually reinforcing effect. And that intentionality to have mutually reinforcing effect, I think, marks a transition from looking for a silver bullet of change to being able to think about change and transformation as being more like an orchestral symphony where we're trying to compose or choreograph, make a piece of work where all of the instruments have their time in the, in the sun, but also provide a coherent, beautiful harmony at different points. So it's instead of what should we be doing, it changes to how do we weave together with an intentional sequencing plan a multiplicity of levers of change. And I, I think not only is that how we affect change, but I think that's also how we enlist more people into whatever the movement might be. 
because everybody's got their lane, everybody's got their particular type of contribution. Someone's going to be fantastic organising a group of people to do something. Other people are going to be fantastic at feeding the people that turn up, and so on and so forth. We don't just need the person at the front. We need um, all people being able to um, leverage their strengths because out of that ability to contribute their strengths comes a process of strengthening identification, comes a process of being able to act their way into a deeper sense of coherence to a particular movement. And, um, and that leads to, I think, a more relational approach to how we encounter and generate change more broadly. Um, whole humans, with all of the chaos that they bring, you are an example. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And, um, and, I, and I think embracing the... Just going to try feeding, because that will at least make you quiet. Um, I think there can often be a real point of tension with um, cause-based initiatives between principle and pragmatism. Do we need everybody to believe in order to trust them, or are we willing to accept the pragmatic reality that people can do good things without appreciating that they're good, and that that is enough? And the position that a movement takes on that has a really significant impact on coherence, values alignment, um, invitation and subscription um, by those who may or may not feel identified and autonomous in doing so. And then the final point, I think, for contemplating how we build a climate action city is the rinse and repeat of laminating. So one thing that um, we discovered recently is about, I think I can say this out loud without getting into trouble here, about how much right-wing think tanks put into um, racist messaging, about how they actually put money behind testing the resonance of different lines to see um, how many more right-wing believers they get. And not only am I deeply troubled by that, but I'm also really jealous because that enables a rinse and repeat of rhetoric that contributes to building a coherent narrative and vision, that contributes to building a body of action, um, because it's being intentionally plotted and tested. And whereas I think that... Um, for lots of social justice-based movements, we are always seeking and searching for different ways of communicating the same point. And in doing so, as we try to constantly renew the, the messaging that we're using, we're losing the laminating effect. So that um, we have to embrace recycling in a different way. It's about recycling language. It's about intentionally building that lamination to intentionally build vision, um, coherence, and the like. Which um, 
brings me to my final point. Thank you. Um, which is not quite a, here's one we prepared earlier, um, but it's close. With Tokuna uh, Tsuraki Eru, who many of you will have come across, we started working on a model that was originally generated by Professor Manuka Henari, late um, Professor Remarkable, about how we think about systems change. Um, so this model is now out in the world. And it invites us to think about how to create systems change, how to use systems change to create an intentional movement using four dimensions. The kawa, the moral imperative that shapes our mental models and our values and beliefs about a particular thing. The, um, the tikanga, what are the organisational systems, processes, policies, um, whether that's organisational or societal, that are contributing to a given problem or are necessary for a desired solution. And to also look at the ritanga, the behavioural components, because we know that the habits of people lock in the status quo more effectively than any regulation can ever do. And um, the final dimension, putanga, is about the outcomes. To what extent can we see the outcomes um, of a problem state or a desired solution? And I wanted to introduce it here because I think if, if we are to truly leverage the great, the great passions, the life's work of um, people in the Canterbury region, you can see Colin, who has literally given a life um, to this work, and I know there will be many others of you here today, um, for whom a climate action city is something that your heart yearns for, and that governs most or all of your decisions. And so I wanted to bring this framework here, because I think to build a real movement, it is the aim has to be to reach a tipping point of normalisation, where that desired future state is the taken-for-granted habit. But inculcating that tipping point takes work, and potentially it takes almost Machiavellian-like planning, and that's okay. And with that type of planning needs to go the humility that underpins successful collaboration, and for me, this type of framework could, if everyone was willing, provide a way of seeing the distinctive contributions of existing organisations and the skills and heart and passion of many individuals. Because we only achieve transformation if we move from the critical few to the committed many. And... Tonight, we look quite like the critical few, apart from I'm not actually a member, I'm just an interloper with noises. Um, but I'd really like to join the committed many if I felt like there was space for me to do something that felt genuine to me and part of something that was far bigger than me. So you'd like to join too, wouldn't you, darling? And I'm really conscious that we need to, 
So the big one at age three would like to tell me about what could and could not be recycled. Which, just for clarity, I knew I was following the rules. But what was important to me was that she was three in thinking about recycling and owning her voice um, enough to tell her not quite somewhat sassy mother what to do. So that makes me think that she is already a member of a movement that I'm not yet committed to. So I want to join if there's space for me to do that. And I am sure that there are many more who want to come and join you as the committed many. So thank you for your time. Um, we are going to jump to Jessica for, um, for more good things, but there will be a panel at the end where we can do questions and discussions and profundities. So thank you for having all of us with you in our slightly chaotic way. Kia ora, Sasha. Thank you so much for um, welcoming everyone and for your presentation, which I think no one in the room would deny has stimulated our thinking when it comes to creating a climate action city that will include everyone and has room for many who are committed. Uh, tēnā koutou katoa, uh, uh, ki te o tēnī takiwa, naitua huriri, uh, kei te mihi, kei te mihi, kei te mihi. Uh, ko Jessica Halliday tōku ingoa, ko ahau te kaiwhakahaere o te Pūtahi Centre for Architecture and City Making. So it's our very great pleasure to be here with you all again. Uh, for this, the fourth event in the 2022 edition of uh, Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030. So just quickly, there's two uh, groups of organisations and people that have made tonight's event possible, and we'd like to thank our supporters and sponsors, who are the Christchurch City Council and our research partner, the Urban Wellbeing Thread of Ngā Kaina Ora, um, uh, which is, belongs to the Building Better Homes, Towns and Cities, which is one of the National Science Challenges. And secondly, a huge thanks to our speakers who are here um, and thankfully come with extra noise. Um, and thank you to our speakers who are going to help us understand the whys, the hows and perhaps the limitations of place-based climate action. So Sasha's kicked us off. Thank you, Sasha. Um, tonight... Uh, there will be a panel discussion, and it's the usual way of participating via text to this number. If you're online, you can ask a question in the chat, and the team will relay the questions to the speakers. And, of course, we close tonight with the words of a poet. So, um, actually, we're now... We've got two videos. So this is about place-based climate action, and there's we've got two videos from two different uh, people uh, in different parts of Aotearoa who are working on place-based climate action in their places. Um, they're both videos, so one of them's 15 minutes long and one of them's six minutes long. So um, I hope you're able to be part of it and concentrate um, on the video, because I know it's not live. Um, but let's kick it off, Richard, because I introduce it in the video. Uh, kia ora koutou. Uh, I'm Jessica Halliday, kaifakahaere of Te Pūtahi Centre for Architecture and City Making in Ōtatahi Christchurch. Today I'm speaking with Kelly O'Neill as part of Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030, 
an event called How Do We Grow a Climate Action City for Everyone. Kelly O'Neill started in participatory architecture and in 2019 shifted her participatory passions towards advocating for fertility-based deliberative democracy to address the climate, social, biodiversity and sustainability crises. She is a founding member of Te Reo Nga Tangata, The People Speak, who are currently working with Ngāti Toa Rangatira to develop new community governance structures for Porirua. Welcome, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. I'd kia like to, oh, kia ora. I'd like to start by asking about the organisation you're a founding member of. Who is Te Reo Nga Tangata, The People Speak? Kia ora. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, the, so today on our tangata, the people speak, we are a grassroots community organisation who have come together to advocate for tetiriti-based deliberative democracy to address the climate and sustainability crises. Great. So what is deliberative democracy and why do we need it? Mm. Deliberative democracy is really a, um, a fancy way of saying bringing people together to have open and honest dialogue, um, representative group of people that is supported by expert facilitation and a diversity of, of information. Um, and yeah, so it's it's something that feels quite new um, to, to, this, to the Western world, um, but it is happening at quite a great speed and in our Pacific nations and indigenous traditions more broadly, deliberation has been used uh, for thousands and thousands of years. So um, here we have the great fortune of having having some of those influences um, and yeah, traditional forms of deliberation such as Wānanga, Hui and um, Taranoa in the, in the Pacific Islands. So yeah, it is, it's really about um, about bringing people together and finding solutions that can that suit the most people, building consensus and empathy, um, and and making recommendations with the voice of a collective. Right. Mm. So is that it, that's the mechanism for achieving good outcomes? Yeah. Well, it's it requires people to think as a collective. It supports people to um, come along the journey together. Um, there are ways of of um, expanding um, this work so that the general public is able to be brought along as well. Um, and and so yeah, you really you really build a shared understanding. And once people have that shared understanding and a general agreement about what needs to happen, then taking action. Taking action is easy, and that's why we're seeing better outcomes coming from these kinds of processes. Mm. So, how are you working with Ngāti Toa? With Ngāti Toa, so we're we're specifically a Tetiriti-based um, advocacy group, and um, and Ngāti Toa Rangatira are the mana whenua of Porirua. And it was Ngāti Toa, when we connected with them, who convinced us to focus on, on Porirua specifically. So we have formed a team and we are working in, in total collaboration with Ngāti Toa on, on this project. And so what does a totality-based process actually mean in your context? In this context, well, 
yeah i think in 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 a broad context um tetiriti based means giving effect to the tetiriti or waitangi um and yeah so so it means for, as pakeha this is work in um this is about relational work so it means um honoring tinoranga tiratanga and tikanga maori um making sure that there is space um and yeah slowing down slowing down processes making sure there's no assumptions um about what outcomes are going to look like so working through the the, the process in, in steps being open to um to expect that things aren't going to necessarily look like the status quo um and yeah taking guidance from Māori and I think that yeah I think that similarly it has a similarity to the climate crisis in that te tiriti is um is rooted in the past and as is the climate crisis so we can't just look at what we have now and make decisions purely by that when we're talking about being te tiriti based we have to take history into account and look at historical inequities and um and do the do the work um, particularly I feel I think that there's an onus on Pākehā and Tauriwi who have um, benefited from the disproportionate privilege that has come from not honouring te tiriti. so that needs to come into account as well and really support um, tangata whenua and runanga and iwi um, in their in their work at this point in time yeah so how long have you been working on this for um, we started, so Te Reo Onga Tangata formed at the, um, in 2019 mm -hmm. and we, um, we spent a year um, and, and a bit doing, um, yeah, sort of all around the region looking at what a regional um, assembly on climate might look like um, and then we um, connected with Ngāti Toa in 2020, at the end of 2020 once we were all freed to um, be doing that kind of thing again. And um, that was when this kaupapa really took, took off. So, yeah, it's been two years of working with um, Ngāti Toa. And, ah, um, so it was a desire for place-based climate action that led you to this particular process. Yes. That yeah. was the starting point. Mm hmm Yeah. So where are you at currently? Right, so at the moment we are we are organising our second hui of community leaders. So the process that we have come up with through co-design at the moment is actually um, unique to anything that we've seen around the world that is sort of coming under the bracket of deliberative democracy. And that is that we have established a community leaders uh, assembly, if you will, and then um, the public assembly as well. Um, so the Community Leaders Assembly is about um, bringing together people who are connectors of all aspects of work and life in Porirua um, and therefore can communicate all of the issues that are discussed within this Community Leaders Forum and then um, and then and then the and, and so it's proposed that both of these assemblies or forums or collectives or however you sort of want to say it, um, that they will be standing forums, so permanent governance structures, um, and the the community leaders will determine when there is a need for a public assembly, and there is 
Um, general, there is agreement at the moment that the first assembly um, to be held publicly will be on climate. Okay. So um, roughly how many are in that community leaders forum? Mm, that's a good question. So it's it's developing, it's in development. So um, in our first hui, which at the very last minute had to be shifted online because of the COVID outbreak at the time, um, we had over 100 community leaders on a zooey for for um, over two and a half hours. And we are aware that this is um, only sort of just scratching the surface, which just goes to show how much mahi is being done by people on the ground and really reinforces the need for um, for this kind of leadership to be acknowledged and to be able to to connect connect to each other. Um, so yeah, we're we're working through a process at the moment. The sort of criteria, which is not um, a word that we're using, and this is all happening yeah in collaboration with the community leaders themselves. So that's something we'll be working on at the next hui. But really, it is about if you have if there's a group of people who you can go back to and communicate um, what is happening in that space and and what needs and and um, the issues that are that are being addressed, then then that means that you are representative of a constituency and that there is space for you in this forum. So we're expecting that this will be a, a pretty large space. And of course, it will be changing as um, as people come through leadership positions. And we're also really, um, it's really, really important to us that there is a, um, a central and meaningful way for youth to be involved in the process and as well um, the the communities who have been historically and currently um, underrepresented, marginalised by politics as usual. We want to make sure that there is um, a real emphasis on including all of the all of the people that have been historically left behind. Mm. Wow. So when you talk about expert facilitation, I can see with group, a group that large, that is absolutely necessary to that that process. Um, why do you think this process and structure for organising is going to be so effective, especially when it comes to local decision making on climate? Mm, well, I think that one of the really big things that we are failing on with climate is communicating the scale of the crisis. And that is a key thing that deliberation can do is to is to bring people together to really nut out what it is we're actually dealing with. Um, yeah, with with climate as has been talked about internationally, like we really have to change nearly every aspect of our society and our systems and we need to develop new frameworks for for doing that and um yeah building towards consensus has the benefit as we said before that once there is general agreement then taking action is is easy is the next path of course and um i think that yeah we where where we have the privilege of democracy at this point in time, we have a real responsibility to evolve that democracy to meet the needs to match the scale of this crisis. And and here as well, we are fortunate to have Te Tiriti o Waitangi, which is um, a framework that is fundamentally based around local decision making. And it also is, um, you know, mana whenua are 
passionately committed to protecting the environment and the people in their rohe, and they're also here for the long term. So by forming these collaborations that are centered around te tiriti and, and mana whenua and, um, and building consensus of the collective, um, yeah, I think that, that that's going to create a, uh, it's going to create a voice that is true to the will of the people, um, far more so than what we see with, um, yeah, with politics at the moment. So last question, why do you expect that current decision makers, for example, a city council, will take notice or are they already taking notice? Um, well, we yes, we have been including Porirua City Council in this process from the beginning. Um, my experience of councils is that they they don't know how to solve these problems and they're as eager as anyone for bright ideas about what we could be doing. Um, in our two-sided model, the council have a seat at the table as community leaders. So they are part of that forum. They are part of building consensus with those leaders. Um, and of course, they could be um, selected for a for the more public participation as well. Um, so they're really embedded in the in the um, process in that way. And then, yeah, once you have these two bodies who are in general agreement about what needs to happen, it's going to become very, very difficult for the council to ignore without there being repercussions on their popularity. And, and just, yeah, talking about that sort of, you know, like if we, we should, we need changes at the national level as well, but even those changes are going to have to be, we're going to have to talk locally about how we roll those out. And, um, and yeah, this is a model that is, is going to provide ways for us to really determine what it looks like to um, to make these climate actions and these um, security changes on a local level. And our experience is that council are yeah really really willing to do that. They um, haven't necessarily been been willing to take the risks, but that's because politics, as usual, is risk adverse. But um, yeah, we are um, prepared to to do that mahi for them. So. I, I have every confidence that it's that it's going to land well if we stay true to the processes of deliberation and and tetiriti. Brilliant. Hey, Kelly, thank you so much for um, bringing uh, this the stories and the experiences and the kopapa uh, that's happening in Porirua to our conversation today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to to share with you. Thanks. Kia ora. Thank you. So weird watching yourself. Um, so many thanks to Kelly for her time. Uh, our next speaker is Joanna uh, Santa Barbara, who's speaking to us from Nelson. Kia ora. I'm Joanna Santa Barbara, co-chair of Nelson Tasman Climate Forum. I want to tell you a little about this forum, hoping that our experience might be useful to you. I'll start the story about three years ago. There was climate activity going on in our region. The student strike for climate had elicited a declaration of a climate emergency by Nelson City Council. A small think tank group, Zero Carbon Nelson Tasman, saw the need for a big tent coordinating group for climate action and set about bringing this about. There were months of talking to the two councils, Nelson and Tasman and the eight iwi of the region it was judged essential 
that the structure of the new forum be a form of co-governance with iwi. Eventually, a charter was agreed to, affirming the purpose of the forum to weave the community together for urgent climate action, mitigation, adaptation, working for a just, equitable and resilient society. Note the scope of our actions, extending to the rights of all living organisms, including humans. This was one of the points where te, Ma te Ao Māori values influenced our shaping of our purpose. Our scope has also enlarged in another interesting way. We invited Bill Rees, one of the founders of the Ecological Footprint Idea, to speak to us. He spoke about climate change as a symptom of a larger problem, human ecological overshoot, our transgression of planetary boundaries in terms of climate systems, biological systems, flows of nitrogen and phosphorus and others. Many members of the forum have adopted this understanding into their approach. Our focus is largely regional, but also national, where the relevant systems are at that level. Our structure comprises two co-chairs, one from iwi and one from tau iwi, non-iwi, and a leadership group of 16. Four seats for iwi reps, seats for one councillor and one staff member from each of the two councils. Of the eight remaining seats, one must be for someone under 25. I'm the tau iwi co-chair, currently solo. The, the membership organises itself partly in terms of sector working groups such as transport, waste, food, energy and so on, and partly by project. We use consensus decision-making in our groups at all levels. One of our earliest accomplishments was the production of a regional climate action plan organised by both sector and by actors, household, business, community and governance bodies. These have been distributed throughout the region, including being available in some supermarkets and libraries. What else do we do? The forum is quite a vibrant space with a fairly constant hum of climate and biodiversity work um, of various different kinds. Projects are largely initiated by members who can apply to the leadership group for funding. One of the most exciting is the social marketing project, which derives from a C40 Cities report on what cities can do about climate change. It promotes six areas of change under the following slogans, end clutter, dress retro, eat green, travel fresh, holiday local, change the system. Altogether, less stuff, more joy. And we're thinking of adding a seventh about protecting biodiversity. The website for this project gives it the potential of being a national project on lowering consumption. There's nearly always a submission going on, um, responding to national or local government policy drafts. We were active in the local government elections, running Meet the Candidates events in, in both of the electorates. We run a monthly repair cafe. We recently prepared a, a report on optimal processing of organic waste in the region. 
We write articles for media publication from national news uh, to professional and parish periodicals. We take our message to fairs and festivals and also run our own events. We run educational uh, webinars. Our work with councils is an important feature. Council staff are very collaborative, sometimes consulting with us early in policy processes, often ready to help us with our work. Nelson City Council has funded us with 100,000 a year for our first three years, and we receive funding from other sources and from member donations. This enables us to employ three part-time people as coordinator, communications manager, and volunteer placement and project support manager. Our largest resource, however, is the time, passion, and creativity of volunteers. We have soft success criteria, but we'd really like to mark success by hard criteria, such as 10% decrease in greenhouse gas emissions each year, a percentage increase in biodiversity health each year, alongside maintenance and better distribution of human well-being. But we haven't attained this measurement capacity yet. We're working on it. Thank you. Um, thanks. Our thanks to Kelly and um, to Joanna for taking the time to prepare those for us. So I'd now like to welcome to the stage uh, our panellists. We have got maybe about half an hour max, no, 20 minutes max for a panel, maybe slightly longer. Um, so Catherine, Pete, Ratoti, Chakraborty and Sasha, and please bring your daughter with you if, you, if that's the best thing to do. And so I've asked you, um, Sasha's already introduced herself. Um, Catherine, you're sitting next to me. Would you like to briefly introduce yourself? Ko Catherine Peterhoe, he tangata tiriti. Um, I want to introduce myself, I suppose, as a school teacher who got out of school teaching in order to involve myself with other adults and to try and organise for against all the social injustices that was going on. I mean, it was as big as that, really. And so I had to learn about letting go of school teaching approaches. And it was that that led me towards working with, for example, the WEA, an organisation that simply uh, allows people to in take their lives and set their own agenda and get on with dealing with injustice because that's the co-papa of the organisation. And that led me into a lot of other places, both locally and nationally and internationally. And the more I did it, the more I discovered that the treaty was the framework that I think we need to discover most. So that's really why I stayed in the treaty work. Kia ora, thank you. Uh, welcome. So my name is Rutodi. I am a, a lecturer of human geography at, at Canterbury. But it's a really, uh, the way I ended up in Canterbury is a really crazy story, so I won't talk about it all. But I grew up in a small mining and steel town in eastern India um, where I saw in front of my own eyes most male members in our community 
uh, beat steel in front of, you know, 1,000 Fahrenheit furnaces as it came out or worked in mines. And, you know, um, right next door was a uranium mine. And our river, which was called in, in our language, thread of gold, was more of a thread of death. It carried a lot of sludge out of that mine into homes, into bodies, uh, which, as you know, could completely ruin both our communities and ecologies. Um, so I kind of grew up seeing that on one hand, and on the other hand, I saw um, environmentalists uh, often colluding with the state to create uh, national parks, to create conservation areas, while at the same time dispossessing people who depended on those forests, uh, evicting people from their ancestral homelands, right? Um, so both of these things were really uh, powerful in kind of forging me as a person and added to the fact my grandparents were refugees from Bangladesh who had survived the Bengal famine, the colonial created artifact that killed three million of my people. And they had also survived partition, right? They had survived the partition of India. And they came and they, you know, my grandfather beat steel till he died. Um, but the, the thing is that I've spent most of my life, uh, I, I was lucky enough to escape his fate. I got a scholarship to study in the United States. And since then, I've spent a lot of my life working around agrarian justice in South Asia, where, uh, you know, supporting farmers that are standing up against big agrarian corporations that are trying to patent their seeds, supporting rural communities that are battling both the state as well as corporations. Um, and so since being here in Aotearoa, I've, I've tried to engage in some of those conversations with immigrants here to better understand the ways in which the colonial histories that they come from, right, especially immigrants of color, how are those stories represented in this nation, right? How are those stories represented in the ways in which we understand politics, environment, what have you? So thank you again for this opportunity, and I hope to uh, talk with all of you. Kia ora. Um, thank you all. So a first question um, is for each of you. Uh, and Sasha, I think we'll start with you, um, especially seeing you had so many wonderful things to share with us at the beginning. What do you each think, starting with Sasha, that the first priority should be Ōtotahi in this region if we did want to achieve a climate action city for everyone? Um, I was really hoping not to go first. <laughs> uh, I think... Uh, Something simple that involves mass participation is a really practical step. And I think that um, the reason I say that is um, I also grew up with sage insights like the world doesn't change until the white middle class do stuff. I'm not sure whether that's appropriate, but I think it's very much true. And um, I think at the moment, We've got, uh, across different environmental movements and activities, we've got quite bounded communities. And um, so I think unbounding communities to enable communities of interest to weave together 
into something bigger than more than sum of parts. I think that's really important for us. So a big dream. Is this a this is an action. This is the middle part you were talking about about enacting it before you even believe it. Yeah, and mm. the reason I say that is I think we've seen across government lots of failed experiments in getting organisations to collaborate by unifying their IT systems. <laughs> is there anything, sorry for any IT specialists, but is there anything less motivating than building a shared services function? But we seem to think that that's an appropriate place to start collaborating. And I think the thing that enables collaboration is human relationships and joy. Okay. So right. being able to do something that is joyful mm. and you get to meet the chaotic bits of people's lives. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Ritori, what's your answer to that question? What do you think the first priority should be for this place? Uh, <laughs> in creating a climate action city for everyone yes, in that yes. purpose. Um, and, I, and I think I told you earlier that I'm going to say something controversial. Um, but again, it's sort of informed by my own work with the IPCC, my work with communities across the global south. We need to decenter climate change if we want to build a climate action city. And I know that almost sounds counterintuitive, but what in, in many of the communities that I work in, in the Himalayas or in the Bengal Delta, where my family's from, climate change is already happening. It's, it's already there. However, what we see is that most communities are quite able to adapt. They are very pliable, they're very flexible. What they can't adapt to is structural issues, right? They can't adapt to patriarchy, they can't adapt to racism, they can't adapt to a predatory capitalist market. And so when I, for example, I'm going to the Himalayas in 12 days, um, when I'm up there, when I talk to some of these communities, they always ask me, why are you so obsessed about the climate? The climate is not what oppresses us. Because snowfall has already shifted by three months. Everybody has adapted. They've already changed their crops. They don't need a specialist to come down for the state university to show them how to live. Farming is adaptation, right? So again, I, I, I could go into it in a lot more details around how climate change and climate reductionism, right? This, this way in which the politics of climate reduces all the impacts we see around us from inequality to war to, for example, the Indus floods, which just happened, which many of you might have seen, which completely devastated southern Pakistan. And what happened is there was such a big outcry about how this is a climate crisis, right? But it's really not. The reason those floods happened is colonial hydrology. It's 150 years of planting cotton on rangelands that should have been used to graze cattle. It's the artificial drawing of borders, breaking hydroecologies that didn't allow farmers anymore to, to have social ecological relationships that would allow for well-being, right? However, it's like what activists in Bangladesh say. We've come to a point where if you want the world to listen to you, you add climate like a spice. So they're just sprinkling climate as a spice so that the world actually listens, right? So that today that there's a loss and reparations fund that came out of COP27 would never have happened had climate not been sprinkled as a spice. Those same activists are gonna go home to Rawalpindi, to Karachi, 
to what have you. And they will know that what they really need to change is the canal system. What they really need to change is cropping. So having said that, this is the delta, right? We're sitting on Mahingakai, we're sitting on, we're sitting on an ecology that where land and water binaries were artificially created by hydraulic engineering. This is what the British did all over the world, right? For me, one of the things to do is to liberate this deltaic ecology. Everywhere I see, we need a climate net zero city by 2030. Net zero is nothing more than people consuming and paying for their carbon sins by buying forests in my land, right? If you truly want a, carbon, a, a, a climate resilient city, liberate this deltaic ecology. The goal should be Christchurch, an amphibious city by 2050. That's the goal, right? Um, it, um, thank you. Uh, it makes me all want to tell you now to come to our water event on the 6th of December. <laughs> Catherine, how would you answer that question? I think I'd get people to talk to each other about what really matters to them and then to make connections between what they're talking about and what is uh, uh, named as climate action. And that's the connection that I think, it's a bit like the symphony that um, Sasha referred to. This is, this is like an orchestra. Lots of people are playing a, a part of it and we, can, we need to enjoy the, the big sound of it all by seeing it as a movement towards something which is about full justice. It's about, it, they're all, all the issues of justice, I think, are connected to this climate action. But in this country, I think it is vital that we do that in a way that is no longer colonizing and monocultural. And actually, we have the framework of the treaty to, which was an invitation to all of us to belong here. And so that's the identity, I think, that we can set out to discover in relationship. So it's learning about new forms of decision-making, as Joanna talked about, too. Yep. So you mentioned Tetelite or Waitangi. So how would it be a framework for a climate action city? Well, I think to understand it, first of all, as an invitation that was extended in 1840 um, to people who were enjoying coming into this country and to belong here. And so if we don't honour that, then we really don't have a very legitimate place to stand. And so um, not for that reason, but because it brings about a different form of decision making and people actually work on things in a way that is resulting in, uh, well, rangatiratanga, weaving people together, um, embracing interdependence, all of the things that matter for climate change so that we can let go of some of those old ways and discover the new ways of working together. And the treaty does give us a really close framework for doing that. Before, I... Before we throw to the question from um, the audience, do either of you want to add to Catherine's answer? Um, in a state of undress and all kinds of things are going on. But I, I think the, the treaty gets wrapped up in a whole lot of obscurity. Mm. And I, I think the simple thing that should happen if the treaty is genuinely applied 
is that we should see all of our assumptions and do that, discard them. <laughs> so, um, so all of our discussions about the importance of efficiency and that this is the nature of a conflict of interest and pick any assumption that's treated like it's the holy grail, that should get pulled up and relayed, which has got um, to a, a different centre. So structural solutions are no guarantee that our assumptions will be relayed. Co-governance is not the panacea. It's the ability to um, collectively find and question our assumptions. Uh, Hannah, you have a question. Is city a scale that we can take climate action on? Or is this about enabling the communities in our city to do the work only they can do? I mean, I could uh, say, again, I think going back to what Sasha was saying, uh, scale comes with it, uh, scale brings with it its own possibility and its own limitations, right? Um, one thing to kind of think about is that uh, <laughs> it's very interesting, you know, I heard a lot this word crisis. Um, a lot of indigenous practitioners from the Himalayas and my friends in North America they really actively push back against this word because they, to them it invokes that there is an apocalypse that is coming. But most of them say that we already lived through an apocalypse. There is, this isn't a crisis, this is a possibility, right? So moving from that politics of crisis is really important because in moments of crisis, the first things that get suspended are human rights, our civil rights, our democracy, right? If we work from a crisis point of view, then we will aim for survival. If we work from a, a, a flourishing point of view, then we'll, we'll aim for possibility, right? Mm. This city, while it, it, it is within a bicultural nation, it is incredibly multi-ethnic, right? There, there is a lot of cultural um, ideas, beings, belongings that are floating around here, right? To truly echo that, to truly represent that, I feel is a way of addressing climate change, right? That plurality itself is the asset. And understanding that a lot of the communities that are here are bringing with them their own historic ways of managing land, right? And not not pushing them into a frame which may or may not address their own needs, right? So again, just to, to say that, like, ototahi is, 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 is plural. There is a lot here, and we should be looking at all of it instead of some of it. So just to extend that, thank you. Do all of you think, you know, we've listened to the, what's going on in Parirua and in Nelson, do you think we'd do it differently here, and why? Does us being here mean it will be done differently? Yes, because to me, anyway, the, this, is, this is this place, and we need to understand what this place is about. Um, and that if we get people to talk about uh, what really matters to them, they will name things that are in this place. And that's where the relationship with mana whenua and tangata whenua starts to, to flourish. And, and, and I think many people are seeking that connection 
and don't perhaps um, know how to do that. So I think if we make a start by first of all being clear about what we really do care about and sharing that with each other, then that's going to be a, um, a point of communication which is different from the one that's already defined for us. <laughs> and, and Rotori, you already potentially answered this by drawing attention to the um, hydrological nature of this place as a delta. Um, do you think that might be, and I think about Sasha's call for us to find some connecting mass action, is that where that lies, do you I, think? I think so. I mean, look, uh, my Tipuna, my Fano, are from the greatest delta on earth. It's a delta half the size of this country. Um, just like people here are Tangata Moana, we are people of the river. We live and die on rivers, right? Um, what I feel is that, you know, there is, there is all of this, uh, there is a, a lot of big concepts. There's a lot of temporality, which is in the future. Often the issue with, with climate action can be we are looking too far into the future. Whereas if you talk with people on the ground, whereas if you talk with communities, they're looking behind. They're looking at the past. They're looking at things that were done that are still ongoing. This, this deltaic ecology, right, is such an incredible manifestation of what, of the ways in which we can relate to nature, right? This human and non-human separation, which is predicated upon colonial ecology, which is what conservation programs in North America or what have you have been, you know, they've been following this for a hundred years. Delta, the delta ecology, both as a metaphor and as a material place, destroys that separation. It brings back a whakapapa-based, a, a, a kinship-based relationship with place, where eating animals is completely justified because the ethics that are bounding us are not muddy, right? That's, that's what we need, is, is, is deltaic ecology as a way to think about policy, deltaic ecology as a way to think about the future. Thank you. Um, I'm just aware that we're really keen on honouring everyone's time and finishing on time. It's something we endeavour to do. And I know that you can see I have three pages of questions myself and I know you've got more questions. But I also want to leave time for our poet as well. So one last question. Is there anything that you would like to leave us with, a thought that we haven't heard already tonight before we hand over to our poet? Just the value of being courageous. And I think we have a city that has a lot of courageous people in its past. And I'm just going to you know, mention just one or two, like, um, well, we all know about Kate Shepard, but really it's people like um, Elsie Locke, um, people who stood up and bead counted. And so I think it's really about having the courage to stand up and be counted and, and get to know those of us who feel it, it matters and keep talking about what matters and keep it on the agenda. Because quite often the things that are promoted as being important are not that important. I think uh, one thing which is kind of important is any kind of climate action will have to walk this line between looking inward and looking outward. 
it can often feel in Ototahi and even in Aotearoa that we are separated from the rest of the world, you know, by Moana Nuiakiwa. But the economic supply chains and the cultural supply chains that connect us to the world means that everybody in this room today is benefiting of the labor of millions of people across the world who are living and dying in shipyards, in factories, in mines, right? And so if climate, if this word climate is truly a planetary taonga, then our actions have to reflect that we need to kind of look at these supply chains. We need to ask justice, not just for what's here, but what are we connected to? Are we buying offsets in forests that are destroying communities? Are we using computers that are harvested by eight-year-olds in e-waste factories in Western India, right? Are we part of this global system of oppression, no matter what our color of skin, what our gender, if we live in this land? Which means if Odotahi truly has to be an example of climate action, it has to make sure that what's in and what's out both have justice in it. Um, this is a bit of a life philosophy, but I also think it's got evidence behind it. Um, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> and um, so in 2020, New Zealand made history, it's just no one saw it, and that was for the first time in our contemporary history, Māori had better social outcomes than non-Māori. And that was the first national lockdown for COVID. Um, we'd, we'd be naively optimistic if we thought that was because of the mainstream response because the mainstream response has not delivered that kind of atypical outcome so why would it do it this time? Um, I don't think it did. I think what happened was a network of Māori organisations and communities across the country saying if we don't look after our communities they'll die. And they embodied the it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission mantra and accessed resources that nobody else could access and were able to do things on the basis of trust and knowledge that the government could not replicate given a thousand days. And to me, that is just so inspiring. Mm. To me, that opportunity to literally make New Zealand's history is equally available to any other community that wants to embrace that it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission philosophy. What is difficult to replicate is the crisis factor. We're great at mobilising just humanity in general when there's a crisis and there's not many of us that are marathon runners who can just keep it going or who can start without a trigger. Um, and so my final word is that when I read what psychologists write, they say that fear is a less powerful motivator than love. That fear will keep us going for a short time, not a long time. Love will keep us going for a long time. And whether that love is, you know, all romantic and lovely, um, or a sense of inspirational openness, and I believe in the power of the people here to unlock that enduring source of motivation um, for many, if we choose to. So um, I believe in all of you. 
to stop asking for, for permission and just do shit. Thank you, everyone. I know we've barely scratched the surface, but we've gained a huge amount to think about. Um, and now, um, as we exit the stage, we'll welcome up Eric Kennedy. Thank you. Uh, kia ora koutou, ko Eric Kennedy aho. Um, I'm a poet um, and a co-editor of an Aotearoa climate change poetry anthology called No Other Place to Stand. And I've had the privilege of curating a list of poets for the 2022 Christchurch Conversations series, one per event, um, because art is a form of expertise too. Um, and artists are tackling issues like climate change as vigorously as anyone else. Tonight's poet is Melanie Dixon. Um, Melanie is a poet, as I've said, also the director of the Hagley Writers Institute, and the first book in a young adult speculative fiction trilogy of novels, A New Dawning, is out in April, and she's here tonight to give us a poem. Please welcome Melanie Dixon. Thank you for the introduction, Eric, and thank you for inviting me to be here. It's a real privilege to be here. Um, I'm going to read you just one poem this evening, and the title of the poem is How to Explain to My Children Why We Did Nothing About Climate Change in 1994, Even Though We Knew It Was Happening. Before I read the poem, I'd like to talk a little about 1994. Some of you might remember it, some of you won't. Um, in 1994, I was a bright young thing on a shiny new master's program in environmental change. And it was just after the IPCC had released their first two reports. The first was in 1990 and the second in 1992. And I dug these reports out early this week because I wanted to read them over again and, and check what exactly did they say. And the reports basically said that we are entering into a period of human-induced climate change and unless we act now, as in 30 years ago now, things are not going to look very pretty. And you look in the graphs in these reports, um, and sitting here in 2022, we are exactly at the points where they said we would be um, if we took no action. We're sitting at exactly those points in terms of carbon dioxide emissions, in terms of um, temperature warming. And if we extrapolate, if we take those, those predictions forward a number of years into the future. So I'm currently writing a trilogy, a speculative fiction trilogy for young adults at an unspecified time in the future where um, global climate change has continued to, to carry on as business as usual. Um, the polar ice caps have melted and we've seen an 80 metre sea level rise, which is what they're saying will happen. And 80 metres in Christchurch, so 80 metres is that little church going up Dyer's Pass Road. The airport is at 80 metres. Banks Peninsula is an island, and the rest of Christchurch is underwater. But my novel is speculative, and my novel is fiction, so it doesn't have to be like that. I don't have these in 1994 either. <laughs> How to explain to my children 
why we did nothing about climate change in 1994, even though we knew it was happening. We were too busy. Too busy going to work and paying the mortgage and doing the laundry and planning our next trip somewhere nice. It went in the pile of things to think about tomorrow or the next day or some other time when we weren't too busy trying to pay the mortgage and do the laundry and get on in life. It seemed too big, too hard. It seemed like a problem that somebody else, somewhere else could try to fix. We were too busy going to work. We felt insignificant, as if anything we did couldn't make any difference. We were too busy paying the mortgage. We were naive. We thought the people in charge would be the ones who made the change. We were naive. We were too busy doing the laundry. We tried not to think about it. We tried not to think about the floods and the storms and the famines and the fires. We were too busy planning our next trip somewhere nice. We were scared. Scared of what might be happening. Scared of saying the words out loud in case they were true. Scared in case people didn't listen. Scared in case they laughed at us or called us names behind our backs or said we were overreacting. We were too busy going to work, paying the mortgage, doing the laundry and getting on in life. We weren't brave like you. Thank you. And just before I leave, I'd like to share a quote with you. So as I was preparing to come this evening, I had an email from the Commonwealth Writers Foundation all about climate change, the climate crisis. And I just want to share a quote from Jamaican writer Diana McCauley. She says, The climate crisis needs stories, fictional or personal, because talking about science has not had sufficient impact on its own. If you want to reach people's hearts, you need the arts. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie. You know, when I thought about us planning this event, I thought about how important it felt because one of the things that's underpinned every single Christchurch Conversations event is the idea that was asked in the question, which is, is the city the right scale for action? And then I sat here listening to everyone and I realised that there is no magic bullet but we've received some significant wisdom that I want to repeat to you and I hope you'll think about as you leave and I hope you'll think about tomorrow. The first is the importance of delta culture and hydrology and a reminder to come to our event on the 6th of December which is about the water city. The second is the power of a mass inclusive action that might prefigure belief and express values. The third is about the importance of courage. And the fourth is about international solidarity and about justice. So as you go out into this night, um, I hope you can think about and carry those things with you. Pomarie. Thank you. You've been listening to How Do We Grow Climate Action City for Everyone, part of the Christchurch Conversations 2022 Climate Action Series. 
Many thanks to Te Butahi Center for Architecture and City Making for sharing this recording. Podcasts for the whole series are available on the Plains FM website. Search Christchurch Conversations.